0: This is Broccoli. Content that's good for you. This podcast may contain strong language and themes listeners might find upsetting. Listener discretion is advised. With nearly 100,000 cases worldwide, coronavirus is a massive cause of concern. But COVID-19 has really been bringing us some of humanity's finest. A survey has found that 38% of beer-drinking Americans say they're not going to order a Corona beer following the outbreak. Australians have been buying so much toilet paper when stockpiling. Supermarkets are running out. FYI, water also does the trick. And tube-riding Londoners have been wearing plastic bags, as well as boxes on their heads. In more bizarre events, research has shown that third-hand smoke is a health risk in cinemas. Donald Trump tweeted Elizabeth Warren to drop out of the Democratic leadership race and back Bernie Sanders. Boris Johnson having a baby and getting engaged was somehow deemed front-page news. And the Bond movie No Time to Die has been pushed back by seven months due to fears coronavirus could impact the global box office by as much as $5 billion. Wow. James Bond really said there's no time to die, huh? And by the way, happy International Women's Day. Did you know that we've been celebrating this special day for 111 years? The earliest observance was called National Women's Day, organised by the Socialist Party of America in New York City. But the movement soon moved global. The German socialist Clara Zetkin posing the establishment of an annual tradition. International Women's Day celebrates womanhood, our achievements within science, politics, economics, and essentially everything. It's also a day to exercise our right to protest and raise awareness of continued inequality. This is your Broccoli Weekly. I'm your host, Diora. To everyone who has subscribed, rated, and reviewed our show so far, thanks for being real ones. If you haven't, there's no time like the present. In today's episode, we will be discussing the bullying allegations against Priti Patel, coronavirus' impact on Flybe's collapse, and Oxford University cancelling Amber Rudd's appearance. I'm joined by political journalist Marie LeConte and Metro's lifestyle journalist, Faima Bakar.
1: The Home Secretary is doing an outstanding job. I have every, I have every confidence
2: in her. Uh, if if there are allegations, of course it is right that they should be properly investigated by the Cabinet Office, and that is what is happening. But I take no lessons. About First up,
0: bullying. the bullying allegations against Priti Patel. Priti Patel has come under increased pressure to resign as Home Secretary as bullying allegations have emerged against her. There have been three so far. The allegations have been denied by sources close to Patel, but will increase pressure on Boris Johnson to ask his minister to step aside while she's investigated by the Cabinet Office. Marie, can you explain to us what has happened so far?
2: Effectively, I think there's been there had been a sort of you know low level grumbles about priest Patel's behavior at the home office but also her relationship more widely with the civil service there. and then everything kind of exploded when Philip Rutnam, who's the who was now the permanent secretary for the home Office so the most senior civil servant in that department resigning but you know in, a, in the most explosive way possible like we'd never seen I think a permanent secretary resign like that so you know doing it on television, uh, reading out a statement you know effectively um attacking the Secretary of State. Experts afterwards kind of saying that clearly he did it in that way instead of because normally you'd go quietly as a senior civil servant, but clearly doing it that way because he felt that you know his, his civil servants would not really have been safe or, you know, treated well if he'd not spoken out. So that kind of, you know, that, that that's kind of what, what blew it all up. But then since then, there's been a number of stories of bullying allegations about Priti Patel in previous departments, because she'd been the Secretary of State for International Development before that. And before that, again, uh, she was a Minister for Employment at the Department of Work and Pensions. And so there's now been a number of stories about her um, allegedly bullying civil servants in all those different departments. But then what's been quite interesting is that actually you know, Number 10 and other Conservative MPs have been entirely standing by her side so far. Like, Because normally, you know, with scandals like that, you do kind of see in the first few days, maybe kind of, you know, Number 10 and the benches saying, you know, of, of course, you know, the minister has her full support and then eventually you know, it kind of quietens down and eventually that person basically has to resign. It's not happened so far. You know, Number 10 is still very much um, standing by her. But yeah, so there's going to be an uh, investigation done by the Cabinet Office. Uh, stories keep coming, you know, not quite every day anymore, but every other day about her alleged behaviour. Um, and yeah, and unsure unsure what will happen. It doesn't really look like her position is sort of like tenable, but equally, if she's not had the support of number 10, there's not much anyone else can do.
0: Labour have called for an independent inquiry. Why is that? And do you think there will be one?
2: Well, I suppose, you know, they're worried that the Cabinet Office um, inquiry may be a whitewash into, you know, kind of her behaviour. And want to make sure that, you know, there is, yeah, like, you know, it's it's kind of straightforward like an inquiry that is entirely independent. I don't, I mean, I don't really see it happening because actually, you know, that would be an admission uh, from the government that basically, you know, their own cabinet office is not trustworthy. uh, You know, I I don't really see that happening. I, I sort of see why they're calling for one, but I don't realistically think it will happen.
0: Do you know what kind of things have been said within these allegations? Like, what kind of things has she done?
2: It wasn't necessarily sort of like screaming at people, but it was, you know, asking, was it like, you know, why is everyone so shit around here? Uh, there was a recent allegation about her, I think, throwing a folder or something at someone. And then, you know, there was kind of like wider telling stories telling someone about,
0: to get out of her way.
2: Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, wider stories as well in, in terms of the impact on, you know, people having to take time off, allegedly because of her behaviour. Um, and I think one person the payouts? Who, Yes, there was uh, one payout for like £25,000, I believe, uh, from the department it's now a wide range of allegations.
0: Frymer, what have you made of the situation? Do you think we'll be seeing the loss of Pretty Patel anytime soon?
1: I don't know if we will be, but I think when it comes in, in the case of a bully, I think the best thing to do is to make an example out of them. In an ideal world, um, that would happen, yes, but at the same time, who would replace her? They might ha- there might be a worse bully than her. But we don't know if she's it's, it's alleged. Yeah, I yes. mean, yes.
0: <laughs> um, so I saw a Daily Mail article earlier this week and kind of wish I didn't. But it said that the left hates Pretty Patel so much because she's an Asian woman who dared to make a success of herself without asking permission. The writer was trying to make the argument that she was just getting her job done and being determined, which doesn't make her a bully. Something I've noticed recently is right-wing commentators putting any criticism of Priti Patel down to racism. But a lot of her critics are people of colour. Faima, what do you make of all of that?
1: What does that even mean? People of colour don't dislike or don't hate Priti Patel because she's brown or because she's a woman. It's because of her policies and because of her values. Like, let's not forget that this is a woman who's consistently voted against human rights, um, against gay marriage. She, She thinks poverty isn't to do with the government despite 10 years of austerity. Um, you know, her history with deportation, defending her, um, wanting capital punishment. She, th- these are, Those are just a few of her greatest hits. There are so many other reasons, um, valid reasons for disliking her. I don't think it has anything to do with um, her gender or her race. Um, and it's really frustrating when these commentators think that we're just being racist or sexist or whatever, because having these minority Tory ministers or whatever doesn't negate racism face value representation doesn't negate racism. Like and it's so frustrating because you know when Sajid Javid was just like, how can Islamophobia exist? I'm literally do you know what I mean? Like it doesn't matter what your position is, you are one example. It's also not about you. It's not about you at all. And it's just so frustrating for people of uh, people of colour to see because it only emboldens racism. People that are commenting on her have valid reasons to do so.
0: Also we were talking earlier about this and I can't, we can't seem to understand. So, does racism exist now or does it not? Because I thought it didn't. Marie, what did you make
2: of that? It's kind of one of those topics where the right just end up as being really intellectually inconsistent. Those kind of commentators and especially on the kind of, you know, on the right of the right uh, will spend their time saying, you know, what would you ever like, for example, a candidate just because of identity politics? You know, it should not matter that someone is a woman or, you know, whatever. I don't see colour. I don't see anything. And, you know, people like Priti Patel, she's just a good conservative, you know, who cares, whatever. So they'll sort of do that. But then, you know, instantly turn around and say, oh, well, you know, clearly, clearly, yeah, the, the left cannot handle, you know, the feminists cannot handle or seeing a woman, it's like a woman of colour kind of, you know, not agreeing with them. And so, well, you kind of have to pick one. And I don't even really mind which one you pick, to be honest. But, you know, but like, th- th- those two opinions are not really compatible to have. But then that like, kind of on the topic of Pretty Patel and race, like, I find it interesting because like, I-, I wrote a profile of her um, a few days ago and so kind of like had to go back to the archives and everything. And there was a story about her because she's been a conservative since she was 18 years old. Um, Wow, that is
0: dedication.
2: Isn't it? (laughs) Um, And Yen has been involved, So I think, went to work for the Conservatives originally, I think just after university as well. So she's kind of been in that system for a long time. But there was a story about her in sort of 2003, I think, like in the early 2000s, complaining about basically like racism and prejudice in the Conservative Party and saying that, you know, and I think, yeah, one of the examples she gave of like some guy at a Conservative selection meeting wearing a Union Jack tie, which she thought was really distasteful and kind of talking about all that. And then, you know, and I think you saw in the Financial Times and clearly I think, you know, she's gone for, she's not spoken about that topic once since, uh, which I, yeah, I, I found quite interesting to see of like, you know back when she was just a sort of, like, you know, backroom operator, she did say, well, actually, you know, the party clearly has a problem with, like, racism and sexism, et cetera. But the second she started becoming successful, you know, she, yeah, again, has not mentioned it since, like, not one time.
0: What do you think it will take for her to be pushed out of the job and for her to resign?
2: I'm not I'm not really sure, to be honest, because clearly I think, you know, the government we have at the moment is one. And I think, you know, if you compare it especially Especially, I think, to Cameron's government, but to Theresa May's as well, to an extent, you know, th- th- there was still a relationship with the press that was, you know, we need to please the press, we need to make sure that we keep the press, you know, on our side on everything, etc. Um, which means that, you know, I think that, you know, had it been May or Cameron as prime minister, she would she would be gone already. But I do think the Boris Johnson government, kind of, you know, Dominic Cummings government, I suppose, is enjoying picking fights with the media, is enjoying kind of, you know, stoking the cultural war and saying, yeah, you know, this is what we're doing, we don't care what anyone is saying, and usually, you know, when when you look back at sort of, you know, ministerial resignations, it is kind of usually a trial by media. It's just that, you know, the media, the newspapers manage to pile on the pressure. sort like day after day after day. And eventually someone in number 10 goes, OK, you know, we've got to let that person go because this will not stop. But that's not, you know, that, that's not going to happen this time because, again, you know, that's something, if anything, I think that they welcome because it shows to their supporters that, you know, they don't care about the, like, metropolitan MSM and they'll just keep some good, you know, right-wing, uh, powerful Home Secretary in the job. I suppose if someone were to maybe come out with bullying allegations on the record, which would be obviously like, a big move for them and that'd be quite a dangerous thing to do, I suppose. Uh, or, you know, sort of a big story, I think, that is entirely, you know, impossible to kind of run away from, then you could probably see her resign. But apart from that, you know, maybe just the results of the investigation, but that's going to take quite a long time. So I think she's basically safe for now,
1: somehow. I find it quite surprising that a woman of color is ac- accused of bullying white men usually when in um you know politics and healthcare minorities are um pushed out or they're more likely to face disciplinary action than their white counterparts um so sort of going on with what you said like it is a little bit surprising I'm not saying it's not true like mm. you know people the, the have that been quite it's being it's mm. being like yeah which kind of goes to show like she's She must be quite a piece of work to, like, subvert that trope.
2: Staff arrived at Flybe
0: headquarters in Exeter this morning knowing that the company they worked for had gone bust. They collected their possessions and headed home again. So let's talk about what coronavirus has to do with the latest troubles for airline Flybe. All future flights on the Exeter-based airline have been cancelled, leaving more than 2,300 staff facing an uncertain future and wrecking the travel plans of hundreds of thousands of passengers. The airline was already struggling, but it seems coronavirus was the final nail in the coffin for Flybe. Other airlines are worried coronavirus will massively impact travel. The International Air Transport Association now sees global revenue losses for 2020, potentially hitting around £90 billion for passenger airlines because of COVID-19. Do you think these are the first signs of the virus's potential effect on the economy?
2: Absolutely. And I think that um, there's sort of two things there. Like The first thing being that, you know, as you said, quite a lot of companies will suffer. And especially I think quite, for quite a lot of companies, it is going to be especially tough because they just have to spend, you know, three years pre- like trying to prepare for Brexit while not really knowing what Brexit was going to look like. And they're still obviously trying because, you know, we still don't exactly know what. Brexit will be for businesses. So kind of trying to manage that and some loss of business as well from especially companies that deal with EU countries. And yeah, to add coronavirus, I think on top of that is obviously going to probably be the final blow for, you know, for more companies. You know, I I don't think Flybe will be um, the first and last one. Um, But then it's kind of looking um, at Flybe specifically as well. It is especially, I think, a worry for Northern Ireland because actually that was the company that had, I think, the most flights to and from Northern Ireland. So actually, you know, that's not been talked about that much. I just kind of saw like one piece about it. But apparently, yeah, it's going to be really bad for business there as well, just because physically there will be considerably fewer flights um, leaving from Belfast.
0: I'm definitely not planning on flying anytime soon. What about either of you? Do you think it's going to affect your plans?
2: Well... Um, since you mention it, my brother is or was uh, doing a master's degree in Shanghai. Uh, so I was meant to go see him uh, at the end of this month, uh, bought the tickets months and months ago. Predictably, you know, it like, didn't happen. So last month I asked for a refund and thank God I'm getting it. <laughs> but then uh, the kicker is that, you know, I was quite annoyed it was going to be like 11 days in Shanghai and Hong Kong um, and like, my big holiday of the year. And I was quite annoyed, obviously, it had been cancelled. I was like, OK, well, that's fine. I'll book something else, you know, instead to kind of um, you did not, cheer myself up. You did up. not do Italy, did you? A week in Northern Italy. <laughs> <laughs> Five days before the outbreak started there. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's cancelled as well, because uh, it was meant to be, you know, quite soon. It went from 11 days in Asia to six days in Bologna to next week, I'm going to spend three days in Whitstable. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well you've got to so, be yeah, careful So have as affected. well
2: i have been affected i have been affected
1: yeah um i actually just got back from saudi arabia i did a religious pilgrimage I went to mecca and the week after i got back they stopped their visas and they're trying to contain it obviously and trying to stop the influx of people and they've actually like cordoned off the entire like the Kaaba area because they're cleaning everything because they have Thousands and thousands of worshippers. Um, so I got really lucky um, because I was able to complete my pilgrimage. So I'm really thankful that I finished it. Since coming back, I did. I, I had a flu, so I was a bit worried. Like, oh, I've been praying against like thousands of different people every single day from all over the world. I was a bit freaking. Like, I was freaking out but luckily it was nothing. Um, But I'm like you, I don't think I'm going to go anywhere else for the next few months, but we'll see. I'm hoping it dies down. Come to Whitstable
0: with me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it it is interesting how it's affecting companies and the way it will affect our wider economy. Of course, if we're talking about the economy, we have to talk about workers as well. There's been a discussion about the way self-isolation will impact those who are sick and need time off work. Boris Johnson said people who self-isolate are helping to protect others from the virus and should not be penalised for doing the right thing. So those receiving statutory sick pay would get an extra £40. The Prime Minister said a great many people would be entitled to SSP, adding others will be entitled to help through existing systems such as universal credit. And we're urgently looking at the application process to reflect on the advice on self-isolation. But does this include those who are on zero hour contracts and people who are self-employed?
2: I don't think we've had actually many details so far, actually. You know, I'm self-employed myself, so obviously I'm following it quite closely because I can't, you know, I can't afford to not work for two weeks. Um, That's something that would happen. But then I think the problem is that the devil will probably have to be in the details. I was um, talking to this man last week um, for a work thing. He thought he may have been in contact with someone with coronavirus and had some very light symptoms. So his company said, you know, basically go home um, and he wasn't being paid while being at home. But the problem is that he needed basically to get the all clear from one 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 from the NHS, but the NHS is so swamped at the moment. It was taking at that point, you know, I think it was day three or four, where no one could test him. And so, well, actually, you know, the problem is my workplace will not let me come back in until I've had the test. But, you know, no one, you know, and I've been calling all day, every day, no one is making me do that. I basically feel fine, but I'm just stuck at home and I'm unable to work and unable to earn money. Um, And so, I suspect that there'll be quite a lot of cases like that of, you know, people that are not straightforward, you know, being in contact with someone feel ill have to stay away need to get sick pay like, there'll be a lot of yeah of, of grey areas i suppose in people in tough situations
0: but this extra 40 pounds i think it's meant to be 3 days worth of pay. So the change, which is being introduced in emergency legislation, is expected to mean an extra £40, pounds, as we said, which is set at 94 25 a week and paid by employers. But the Universal Credit General Secretary said two million workers do not earn enough money to qualify for this. This has been a really interesting discussion about Universal Credit, but also is it a bit delusional for Boris to think that the system we have in place could cope with the extra applications because we're already struggling?
1: I think, as you say, is they are struggling. So I don't know how they're going to deal deal with that many more applications. Also, two million is a lot of people. Like one hundred and eighteen pounds a week might not sound a lot like a lot to us, but the most vulnerable, like a lot of a huge proportion of the UK, don't earn that much money. Elderly people, sixty-five and over, people, um, a lot of um, self-employed people, obviously that don't qualify for it. So it's missing a complete huge proportion of the UK um, and you know, universal credit or whatever, it's not going to magically going to fix the problem.
0: Well, officials believe that up to fifth of the workforce may be off sick during the peak of an epidemic in the UK, which is a lot of people. But there's a real worry that those on zero-hour contracts won't be taking time off, as you mentioned. Um, Do you think this will start an important conversation about the instability of zero-hour contracts and those who are freelancing? Because it's not just coronavirus, right? Like, surely this should be the case for any kind of... Health sickness situation. Hmm.
2: Yeah. But no, but I think it's kind of triggered a really interesting um, and and striking conversation on social media, especially from service workers. Of people saying, actually, no, like and as you mentioned, you know, it's not just coronavirus. So all these people who worked in the kind of service industry saying, you know what, actually, all of us keep, you know, always go to work while sick, and you know, and is the worst possible thing, and we're aware of it, but it's just that you know, our pay will be docked, or we will lose our jobs, or you know, or or, or if we don't turn up to work whatever happens, whatever state we're in. So actually, you know, you guys need to understand that you're currently still, you know, you've been served by people who've got, you know, illnesses you can get contaminated by for a very long time because, you know, because those industries are so precarious. I do hope, you know, it kind of goes beyond the just people trying to talk about it a bit on Twitter and it it goes into you know kind of like national um discourse level I suppose and then hopefully into kind of influencing policy making on the longer run it's not really easy to self-isolate
0: either because people when you think of self-isolation we might think of a beautiful home that you sit in all day every day but that's not the case for everyone
2: I know exactly what, especially looking at London and big cities, you know, a lot of people live in house chairs and even if they don't live in house chairs, they may live in sort of, you know, teeny tiny bedsits. And yet how do you, you know... I think, A, just on, on a mental health point, you know, how how do you spend two weeks in either a very confined space by yourself or in a house with lots of people? But, you know, again, how do you avoid those people? Can you self-isolate if you live with six other people? Stockpiling is quite an interesting one as well. Of It's assumed that everyone has the money, that like has the income to be like, oh, yeah, sure, I'll just pop to the shops now and buy at least two weeks worth of food. Lots of people do not have the money on their account right now to just, you know, casually spend that much money in one go so it is again I think all the discourse around around self, self-isolation has been forgetting uh, about lots of you know lots of people in the country really
0: I think the stockpiling advice that i read was it said something like just make sure you have two weeks worth of food but that is expensive and lots um, of people
2: do get paid weekly and stuff and have to juggle different bills and different you know sort of like credit cards etc and so yeah like they, they may well not have the money to just spend you know two weeks in one go
1: Yeah. Also, if you're a low-income family, like how are you going to self-isolate every single one and have enough money for each person in that household? Like, how is how are you going to manage all of that?
2: A family of five enough food for two weeks. That's that's a lot of money, even if you buy cheap things.
0: Where do you even keep it? It's
2: a question. Mm. You know, I think yeah, I saw like some quite amusing tweets of people saying, you know, as a New Yorker, where do you want me to put this food? (laughs) You know, there is no space for anything in my flat. I live in New York. And again, you know, I think going back to sheds. Um, flats and houses as well you know we've all lived in shared places where you know it's basically one very small fridge for five people and somehow you know you, you can buy three things that you can put in the fridge and that's that two weeks you know how is that going to work realistically for all those people?
0: I really hope that after coronavirus hopefully does pass that we'll be able to have constructive conversations around
1: zero hour work and yeah, and ho- the stability of that. Yeah. And hopefully we can get to a place where there's no earnings threshold for statutory sick pay because people deserve those rights year round, not just when there's the threat of coronavirus looming. So finally, Amber Rudd was cancelled, but not in the way you'd expect. The former Conservative
0: Home Secretary, Amber Rudd, has hit out at rude students at the University of Oxford who cancelled her appearance at an International Women's Day event 30 minutes before it was due to take place. The event, called In Conversation, Amber Rudd, and organised by UN Women Oxford, was scheduled for Thursday evening as part of its UN Women's 2020 Trailblazer series. Rudd, who stepped down as an MP at the last election, was supposed to be interviewed about her earlier role as Minister for Women and Equalities and was due to speak about encouraging women to get into politics. So what did you both think of this
2: story? I quite liked uh, her using the word rude because I think that a lot of the time when people talk about no platforming and talk about, you know, like threats to my free speech, whatever, they go so comically over the top and say, you know, this is a, like the fact that I could not speak at this event is a direct threat to democracy. And it's like, Jesus Christ, calm down. Whereas I think, you know, she she has a point. It is quite rude to, you know, um, cancel an event half an hour beforehand. Regardless, I think, of where you stand on
1: the issue. It's like, yeah, you know what? Fair play. I find it astonishing that they would even consider Amberod for a series on trailblazing women. Um I just that's probably I would argue that it makes a case for why we need more diversity in all organizations because I feel like International Women's Day is obviously about celebrating women, all women, um even if they d- don't agree with you or and so on. But I just feel like maybe don't include someone who's was a key player in creating the hostile environment. Um so I think the the UN and um, Oxford Women's Society they probably should have considered uh, things a little bit more, especially because they did voice that they had some concerns. Um, if they did have those concerns, why have her, why have her sign up at all? And also, why decide so last minute to not have her to you know, deplatform her? Um, and I think the fact that they did, did it half an hour before she was scheduled to speak that makes it easier for people to have sympathy for her um because now everyone's going to be like yeah that's so you know it is rude because nobody wants to you know give up their time Does that and happen then happened to you you would be annoyed right yeah 100% like i completely get personally where she's coming from like i'd be so annoyed if half an hour before i was told i'm not going to actually get to speak um but now by not giving her a platform they've essentially given her a platform because we're going to be talking about her so what did you really achieve? They, they played themselves, essentially.
0: So do you think this is about free speech?
2: Free speech it is fundamentally about a relationship between a citizen and the state. It means, you know, can you say things or will you get arrested for saying them? Um, and as such, I don't think that was a free speech issue. I'm definitely not against, you know, de um as a general concept. I think that especially with far-right figures, it, it has consistently helped. If you look at, you know, people like um, uh, Milo Yiannopoulos in the US, even though know, he's British and stuff, you know, those people do lose their status if you de-platform them. That being said, I think there's a difference between a sort of, you know, far-right campaigner. And you know, and a mainstream conservative party politician, and also actually, you know, and maybe that's just me, but on, on on a personal note, I would generally would have, been, you know, I, I would enjoy an event actually with someone like maybe Amber Rudd, um, and you know, and someone kind of questioning them who's maybe to the left of her, you know, but a, a discussion of actually, you know, what cancer feminism, and actually, you know, what. What do we, you know, what what do we mean when we call ourselves feminists and who gets to decide? I think that would be a really interesting conversation. I do think that, you know, I, I've i interviewed Amber in the past. Um, She was really, really interesting. I, I agree or disagree with her. Um, And, you know, and that's something, you know, I, I would like to see, you know, maybe an interview uh, of her, you know, getting challenged on that topic. So I think it could have been because the entire idea between you no know, platforming and saying actually those people are so, you know, so toxic that even just giving them a platform means they're winning on some level. I don't really think that's an argument you can use, again, with the Conservative Party. They've been the party of government for over like for nearly a decade They've now. had a platform um, for a long so, time. Exactly. And they still do. So, so it's not about, you know, bringing someone up out of nowhere. Um, but, yeah, no, so I, I don't think it should have can- uh, been cancelled. But also, you know, I, I completely agree um, with what was said earlier in that I think, you know, activism is about picking your battles as well. And it's actually about, you know... Are we not going to alienate lots of people if we do something like that? Are we not going to give people like ammunition
1: like people on the other side? So I think yeah, that that was badly played also this might be a bit controversial, but I also think that free speech is something that white people tend to enjoy, like I feel like it's always an attack on free speech when white people want to say something problematic or controversial. But if a person of color wants wants to use their free speech, which they're entitled to, suddenly it's or if they want to talk about something important to them, like racism, suddenly they're playing the race card or they're you know playing the victim or whatever. That's not free speech. That's like something completely different. Because it's interesting, the people who have been
0: critical of her within this situation have. Well, the ones that I've seen on my timeline anyway have been feminists. I've seen an argument that, you know, oh, it's because she's a woman. So how can we be deplatforming a woman? It's like, I don't think that's the argument there. It's,
2: it's her history. I want to say something which I think is not going to make me very popular here. But in, in defense, not full defense, but in slight defence, not full defence, but in slight defence of Amber Rudd, she very much inherited the hostile environment uh, policies. And, you know, and obviously the Windrush scandal happened while she was Home Secretary. But actually, you know, she's not the one who enacted really any of the policy in the first place. You know, and it, it was effectively Theresa May, you know, who did the overwhelming majority of that. And obviously, and I think the Windrush scandal was also kind of, you know, years in the making in terms of Home Office policy making. So I do actually... You know, feel a bit, you know, again, not fully bad for her, but I do feel a bit bad for her because she is now kind of seen as, you know, the, the architect of kind of Windrush and stuff. And it's like, well, actually, you know, basically all of it had been done by the time she got the job and, you know, and she kind of inherited it. And then very quickly it all fell apart. And also um, she did
0: resign mm. because of it all. So because I was thinking this morning, you know, maybe she would get up there on the panel and someone would ask her, how can you call yourself a feminist? you know, and do this talk for International Women's Day when you've done X, Y, Z. But that would have given her the chance to explain and to say, right? But removing that
2: chance, we might not actually hear her talk about it. I, I do think that, you know, problem is with feminism is that it does have so many definitions that actually, you know, no one can ever argue, no one can ever agree on one definition. And I think, you know, it is entirely possible. That's not personally my definition of feminism, but it's possible to see it through the quite narrow prism of it's just okay well men and women need to be equal so you know you just see it through the lens of let's say equal pay and women in boardrooms and you know and obviously you know in stuff like rape culture and like sexual harassment etc so just saying you know just men and women you know need to basically be the same and obviously I personally see it's as quite reductive because again you know there are so many issues like you know and obviously immigration being one of them that target women but there is an argument in saying, actually, you no. Know, like her definition, I mean, what I imagine her, you know, I, I guess the Tory, the mainstream Tory definition of feminism is still feminism. It's just that, again, you know, it, it is quite hard to say, actually, you know, there's only one brand Like we are half the planet and, you know, quite a few women do identify as feminists. So it's, it's not really possible to, I think, mm. say, you know, well, this is feminism, this is not. So, again, you know, that, that's a discussion I would personally who,
0: enjoy yeah, listening exactly. to. Exactly. So who, who gets to call who feminists?
1: Also, every time a woman does something that doesn't necessarily mean it's an act of feminism, Um, just to bring pop culture into it. I know when Kim Kardashian had her, like, leg makeup or whatever, people were like, this goes against feminism, la la la. Like, not everything that a woman does has to be this great strive for, like, you know, gender equality or whatever. And if we're following that logic, that sort of, I don't know if this makes sense, but that sort of means that just because something happens to a woman doesn't mean it's inherently anti-feminist, like... Her being de-platformed doesn't sure. mean it's a sexist thing. Because that's what we're talking about, essentially, where
0: we say that most of our critics seem to be, from what I've seen, women. And so it doesn't make them anti-feminist. I think they're in the right to be able to say, hey, what about your history of this? Does that make you a feminist? But she does she not also... Uh, deserve the chance to be like well this is what my definition of feminism is and maybe she regrets some of her past career maybe she doesn't I don't know but would we ever find out not anymore because she's been you know deep platformed essentially but following from this you know it'll be interesting to see if she does a lot of
2: interviews and how
0: much coverage the story will get.
2: Without wishing to be sort of like wishy-washy like bleeding heart liberal etc but like Amber Rudd remains towards the centrist end of again the party that's been in government for nearly a decade. If she's too right wing to ever you know to, to, to possibly appear in public to discuss stuff, like I do worry about people kind of shutting themselves in slight holes of like you know. And by all means, you don't have to invite you know invite the most offensive people to everything for the sake of you know the marketplace of ideas or whatever. But I you know I, I do think they you know how how do you build how a society, really? And yeah, how do you have conversations if, you know, someone like her is beyond the pale? Or, you know, like I, I do think there's there needs to be a bit of a sense of perspective as well and intellectual curiosity as well. A lot
0: of the time we have to remember that when it comes to these stories, the media loves to use the you know wishy-washy definition of uh, they love the umbrella term of cancel culture um and yeah maybe we don't know all the details about the story yet like obviously we know some um it might later emerge that it wasn't exactly how it's been reported on
2: quite a lot of people are quite keen to yeah to to build up this picture of kind of you know higher education having become you know um I mean, I'm completely, you know, Marxist and, you know, Stalinist and no one can ever speak unless they sing the red flag first, etc. Which is obviously not the case. But, you know, but the way they do manage to kind of build up that image, I think, is by taking lots of quite small stories and putting them together and creating a narrative out of that, which is why, I think that's why I mentioned earlier, I think the importance of picking your battles because otherwise what you're doing is giving your opponent, you know, all the tools to, yeah, to paint the picture they want to paint of how, you know, supposedly the left is behaving or students are behaving, etc. So it's not... I think on the long run, it may end up harming your cause as well.
0: Seeing as we're talking about deplatforming, The Guardian came under fire this week for publishing an article by Suzanne Moore in which she implies that advocating for trans rights poses a threat to cisgender women. Is this part of the same conversation?
2: You know, it is the same dynamics, the same mechanism. Um... And it's, yeah, and it's kind of, you know, just part of this world of, I guess, you know, people who are very, very used to clearly being able to say whatever they want and never have, you know, never see any consequences, suddenly seeing some consequences. To come back to a point um, that was made earlier as well, I think, is something that is, I mean, gendered to an extent, but quite racialized as well of, you know, it's always the same people. And it's like, well, actually, you know, just so you know, this is not really a new thing for everyone, actually, you know. Quite a lot of people have never been able to have platforms, have never been able to express their views, even if the views are controversial. Like this is very much about mostly middle class white people going, oh, hang on. What? You know, can I can I not just say like anything that passes through my head, no matter how offensive it is? And it's like, well, no, maybe you can't. And, you know, maybe if we're trying to collectively build a better society, you know, you, you maybe don't need to be offensive and have your voice amplified all the time
0: exactly like what is no platforming is it someone just basically challenging your view and being like this is not okay because that's i don't think that's what no platforming is
1: right also like as um, marie was saying like who is silencing like w- white cis women that like, you've always been able to talk you've always had that platform um and you know like you say there are other groups that have never had this um this kind of uh, privilege
0: thank you so much both for coming on today where can we find you on social media
1: uh, I'm
2: at YoungVulgarian on Twitter and Instagram. Add me
1: on Twitter. It's at Fayma
0: In other news, the mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, is launching his re-election campaign with a challenge to Boris Johnson to allow rent controls to be introduced if Khan wins another term in office. Comedian Eddie Izzard plans to stand as Labour MP in the next general election. A watchdog has decided there's no need to investigate police contact with Caroline Flack before her death. PlayStation 2 turned 20 years old this week. And finally, Katy Perry has announced she's expecting her first child with Orlando Bloom. This has been your Broccoli Weekly. I've been your host, Diora. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at the Diora. Credits of the clips used and information can be found on our website, www.yourbroccoliweekly.com. You can join the conversation and share your views using the hashtag Your Broccoli Weekly. If you liked what you heard, why not give us a rating and review on your favourite podcast app? And if you loved it, tell your friends. Your Broccoli Weekly is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, Pocket Cast and all your favourite apps. Your Broccoli Weekly is produced by Cass Denton. This is a Broccoli Production.